Let's linger a little while longer <coughs> on our larger theme for this talk, uh, at least so far. Uh, the theme of, of uh, our consideration uh, of different facets of the soul-making movement or journey that uh, may ask of us uh, greater attention, awareness of what what needs care, what aspects, what facets need care, need attention, need inquiry, need um, uh, respect also, um, or modulation, responsiveness, in order that in order that uh, soul-making opens up and not dukkha, uh, so that the uh, relationship with the imaginal and the sensing the soul and the whole soul-making journey doesn't bring dukkha. What do we need to include uh, in, in our care? Okay, so we... And again, um, if I can uh, say at the beginning of this part that uh, my hope, my intention is to, yes, hopefully offer um, things that might be helpful in, in, by way of advice, if you like, um, but also to stimulate um, and open your own reflection on these issues and these aspects. Um, your own soul-making reflections uh, about all this, your own soul-making observations, um, experimentations, considerations of all this. So both, sort of me, uh, you know, disseminating, yes, advice, and also uh, opening up a field, drawing attention to a field, and inviting you also to create and discover within that field regarding these issues, these facets that I'm drawing attention to. So we ended in the last uh, part uh, with saying a little bit about Eros, and again um, pointing out the distinctions between, some of the, the distinction between Eros and craving, uh, that craving contracts the being, um, does not bring soul-making, brings dukkha, etc., and eros uh, has an opening uh, uh, characteristic. Um, it uh, stimulates and supports uh, soul-making and does not uh, in itself lead to more dukkha, uh, generally speaking. <coughs> um, so we've said all that uh, and, and the, the kind of subtleties and details of all that and explained what the differences are and how that all works um, uh, in different talks on other retreats so far. So I'm not going to go into it so much today. But I want to um, perhaps uh, dwell on a few other aspects of, of, um, of desire, eros, craving, and that kind of nexus there, and or collection there, uh, at what we might call um, mastering the fire. Some of you will remember, I think I used in perhaps one or two talks, 
uh, an alchemical maxim from the Middle Ages. I, forgive me, I can't remember who who said it first or wrote it, uh, but it but it said something like, "One who masters the fire masters the work." So talking about alchemy, talking about the transubstantiation um, of existence, really, and the things, the matter of existence into sacred sacredness. One who masters the fire, the fire that heats the alchemical vessel. Uh, one who masters the fire masters the work, the work of alchemy. So if we use that metaphor or image of fire loosely for this um, collection of uh, qualities, uh, desire, eros, craving, etc., um, then what does it mean? What might be involved in mastering the fire? Because if we master fire, uh, then that fire does not create dukkha. So fire, obviously, from the beginning of humanity's discovery of it, or harnessing of it, um, has been recognized this is something quite dangerous, you know, uh, very potent, very dangerous if we... Um, have the wrong relationship to it or find ourselves in the wrong relationship to it and incredibly helpful uh, uh, for all kinds of things obviously heating, cooking, warmth, protection uh, all, all the rest of it so mastering the fire so to speak if we use that alchemical uh, metaphor image um, mastering the fire so that this um, path of soul making or practices of the imaginal sensing the soul don't actually lead to dukkha because we're in the right relationship with the fire so just that um, that sort of peace uh, right now so that alchemy happens uh, in soul in in the soul making or the, soul, the alchemy of soul making happens the alchemy of sensing the soul and uh, um, not so much dukkha. Where, the, where there's the alchemy of soul making, there is generally speaking the, the draining away of dukkha, the release, the freedom from dukkha. So, so let's look at this fire as a as a um, metaphor or shorthand or an image uh, for desire and the different kinds of desire and care with the relationship with that and the discernment with that. I was speaking to someone not too long ago uh, in an interview, and we were talking about this, and someone who'd been practicing really quite a long time, but because, um, at least in the Dharma that she had encountered, uh, there hadn't really been an inclusion of the element of desire. Uh, what she had absorbed from the teachings that she had come across was this more this kind of um, putting aside of desire or shunning it or regarding it with uh, only with suspicion, ignoring it, trying to quell the fires of desire, etc. And then beginning to really be interested in and sense the, 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 the wisdom and the potential in actually having greater discernment and greater flexibility in one's relationship with fire of different kinds. Um, beginning to be interested in that and uh, sense the wisdom of that, we, we were talking about um, desire, if you like, in, in the broadest, um, broadest ways, and the need to discern between uh, different kinds of desire and their operations at different times in our lives and what they need, etc., as, as an element, if you like, uh, as, a, as 
a translation of the metaphor, some of what's involved in the metaphor of mastering the fire. And so if we talked, uh, if I remember, we talked about um, the necessity to learn, you know, and probably gradually, uh, to learn to discern between, um, say, craving, uh, as one kind of uh, burning, um, devotional yearning uh, as another, um, a third might be intelligent, responsive practical desire, and a fourth might be eros. And again, with all these things, the divisions are not always so clear, they overlap, etc. We find ourselves in situations where, and mind states and uh, states of being that uh, involve a kind of mixture of these, and then part of the alchemical work is the refining, the purification, the modulation uh, to all that that comes once the discernment uh, uh, is there. Um, so let's look at these. So um, it, these four uh, divisions, if we if we make loose divisions right now, craving, we've said, brings a contraction. How do I know? I feel it in the body. I mean, yes, you can feel it in the mind in different ways, a kind of gripping of obsessive thinking, certainly, and also a shrinking of the space of awareness. But also, uh, I would draw attention to when there's craving, we feel a contraction in the energy body and a non-harmonizing of the energy body. Um, as well, we notice that um, the, the sense of self and the sense of other or object is uh, they are both rarefied. Both self and other, subject and object, are rarefied um, by craving or in the experience of craving. So there is not that um, sense of what we call the imaginary middle way, nor is there the sense of the emptiness middle way. Um, there is, too, we can notice um, not a sense of uh, the object having a kind of unfathomable depth, and nor the subject, nor the self. So one of the things about craving, in its closing down and uh, kind of drawing tight uh, limits and solid limits around what it involves, or what it connects, if you like, or disconnects in a way, uh, subject and object, etc., and time, um, rather than these um, soft, elastic edges and rather than the dimensionality and the unfathomability, the unfathomable depth that we sense within the erotic imaginal um, in our sense of um, the beloved other, the object, the um, imaginal figure and the subject, the self. There, there is not that unfathomable depth with, uh, with craving, the tantar. Um, in object or subject, or world or time. And as I said, craving brings dukkha with all this contraction, reification, uh, circumscription, uh, solidifying, tightening. Um, it uh, flattens things. If we contrast uh, that with the second um, 
kind of desire that I mentioned in this fourfold sort of loose loose scheme. Now, um, devotional yearning, uh, and for some, for many practices, it's going to be really important to recognize. Oh, what is that? If I just lump that, uh, that experience, that movement of the soul. If I just lump that into a category called craving, or just, that's just desire, that's no good, that leads to suffering. Boy, am I, am I missing out on something uh, that's so um, beautiful, so uh, um, rich, uh, 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 an aspect of human being, a possibility of human being. Um, yes, there is often a kind of bittersweet quality, a kind of poignancy to devotional yearning. We yearn for the divine, we yearn for the beloved uh, other of the erotic uh, imaginal. We yearn for that depth uh, that's just beyond, etc. There's something beautiful here, and we can recognize that beauty mixed in with the poignancy and the bittersweet quality of it. It also has a kind of poetic characteristic to it. Our yearning itself feels poetic, and that's also not quite the same as the, the theatre aspect, but something like that. We feel in a poetic frame of being, a poetic mode of being, when that devotional yearning is uh, pouring through our soul, or kindled in our soul. Is that dukkha? Well, you could say the bittersweetness, the poignancy, the yearning, the not-yetness. Yes, I guess you could say there's a kind of dukkha, but it's a different kind of dukkha, isn't it? It's got that beauty, that richness, that poetry, bittersweetness in it. And, And, again, if we talk about distinction with craving, there is the infinite, unfathomable depth of the beloved other, the object of my yearning. That infinite unfathomability and depth and dimensionality is discernible. The divinity also is discernible, whereas craving is said it flattens, it contracts things, things become just that, what I think they are. And they don't have this palpable, discernible, sensible sense of infinite and unfathomable depth. So that's the, the poetry, the beauty, the bittersweetness, the richness, um, the, the, the poetic quality of soul at that point, of sensibility, the infinite, unfathomable depth, um, the dukkha that one isn't sure that one really would want to let go of. Um, all this help us to discern this um, kind of desire, this kind of fire burning in the soul, devotional yearning that comes and goes, visits the soul, is kindled in the soul, in the in the being at different times. And then there is a kind of desire, a kind of. Uh, um, Yes, desire operating. I said a third category we could call intelligent, responsive, practical desire. So, for example, one is practicing samadhi, and even in a jhana, yes, in a jhana, um, 
it may not be a kind of um, mystical or divine experience in, in, in a particular jhana, say a, whatever it is, for a second jhana, maybe, may not be, but, um, and the desire itself doesn't have that kind of poetic poignancy, but it's just practical. It's just the desire, moment to moment, to sustain the particular pleasure that is the dominant feature of this or that jhana. So the piti in the first jhana, the, the sukha, the happiness uh, and joy in the second jhana, the the, the uh, exquisite peacefulness of the third jhana. Just the desire uh, to sustain that, to permeate it, to permeate that through the body, to stabilize it, etc. Um, this desire is operating in a very kind of low-key uh, way as a kind of engine, as a kind of navigator, as a kind of director, moment to moment, of what one is doing, yes, doing, in the jhana. Um, and it's really not a big deal. It's just kind of um, a part of the mind is just intelligently, practically, responsively. In other words, it's responding to what's actually happening. I don't have to push at permeating anymore. I don't have to desire permeation anymore if I'm already, if the body is already permeated. It's just a gentle ticking over of desire that's directing the attention and the intention to sustain let's say, the pervasion of sukkah, the permeation of sukkah in the whole energy body. It's really not a big deal. I can't get too tight with it. I can't get too kind of um, manic with it. I can't get too, um, I can't get my knickers too much in a twist with it. It's just, it's just a kind of, it, it's part of the, it's part of the the art of jhana. It's part of the skill of jhana, and it's very kind of low key, just an intelligent, responsive, uh, practical desire. Um, just as a, you know, a kind of equivalent from the world would be, I've got a meeting somewhere. I have to go to that meeting, a dharma meeting, a teacher meeting, an interview, or whatever it is. Uh, uh, an, uh, uh, a soul-making meeting with a friend, whatever it is. And um, I have a desire to get to the meeting. So I get in my car, I get on my bike, or whatever it is, and I drive there, I cycle there. Um, but I'm cycling responsively. Both responsibly and responsively. I'm responding to what the, what the conditions... Um, around me need. There's a car coming around the corner. Slow down. The, the lane narrows. I have to wait for this um, uh, car to go by, whatever it is. Uh, now I'm going uphill, so I change change gear. Now I'm going downhill, so I maybe freewheel and maybe a little bit of brakes now and then. There's intelligent, responsive, practical desire. It's not a big deal. You know, it's just it's just part of life. And um, it's an everyday element of our lives uh, most of the time. We cannot make an enemy out of this. We have to recognize when just there's that kind of desire. We need it. It's part of our life. We do it all the time, uh, whether we think about it or not. It's part of meditation. It's part of uh, everyday life. Um, it's part of uh, uh, sustaining what's beautiful. And it's part of our path. Yeah. 
Um, and then uh, the fourth category we can contrast again is eros, which we've talked about, that, that opens the imaginal, that, that opens the and stimulates and supports and fertilizes and catalyzes the soul-making dynamic of eros, psyche, logos, um, bringing with it the imaginal middle way, the unfathomable infinite depth, also recognizable there. The theatre quality, the unfathomability, the dimensionality, the divinity that we've talked about of the object. In other words, again, contrasting it with craving, there aren't these. Um, the object does not have that unfathomable infinite. This is how we can discern. Um, uh, there's not the reification with Eros. There's not... Um, The, the, the tight boundaries there's the more um, porous boundaries or soft elastic edges the beauty the divinity, the meaningfulness the energy body harmonization and alignment and openness again in, in contradistinction to the experience of craving all that subject and object self and uh, erotic object, erotic other, beloved other, um, uh, opened up in depth. We can discern uh, between these different kinds of desire. And all then that discernment obviously is part of what we might call mastering the fire. Need to need to discern. Um, if I'm on the path, any path, um, actually, but certainly if the soul-making path, because then that distinction, particularly with Eros, um, needs to get made. Now I've said, uh, I think it was in the last part of this talk, but certainly in one, one of the parts of this talk, um, <clears throat> and talk before, and also in previous retreats, just about the, the, the different, some of the different ways, we've talked about some of the different ways that desire and um, opening to the current of desire, for example, releases dukkha where there is dukkha actually, rather than just letting go of the desire, which is a you know a very viable option, a very sensible option at times, this real art of opening to the current of d- desire <coughs> and, and releasing dukkha, dissolving dukkha, and discovering treasure right in the heart of the desire. Um, we've talked about that, we've, we've taught that. We've also um, mentioned a few times how... Um, in desires, especially in deep desires, um, in deep longings, in in our devotion, actually is the gift potentially of equanimity. Um, <clears throat> in other words, uh, connecting with, um, fixing on, focusing on, feeling in one's body, meditating on, surrendering to, aligning oneself with one's deepest movement of desire and devotion, deepest movements of desire and devotion, hanging on, uh, grasping onto that desire with the body, with the whole being, with the heart, with the mind, with the energy body. Um, <clears throat> how helpful that can be for rooting the being. And in that deeper rooting, there's the equanimity. And thus, again, um, not the... Uh, Dukkha that comes with being blown this way and that, knocked over this way, knocked over that way, blown off course, uh, unstable, unsettled, etc.
So sometimes hang on to your desire, hang on to your deep desires, find ways of doing that in meditation with the body, with the heart, with the whole being. Really, really skillful teaching. But in that, um, to give you know, to give such a teaching, also it's, it invites or it requires. Um, Again, a subtlety of awareness, a kind of questioning, a probing, an asking, a listening. So, is this desire, uh, it's good to be aware, is this desire um, that I feel that I'm uh, opening to or aligning myself with or whatever I'm doing, is it an open-ended desire or not? In other words, is it a desire that I will... um, that I hope at some point to fulfill, to then tick off, done that, achieved that? Or is it a desire that's more open-ended? There's no real end to this. And that can be a problematically open-ended thing or an unproblematically open-ended thing. We wouldn't want that desire to close, to go out, to reach an end, to be limited, to not have more territory to open to create, to discover. So is this desire open-ended or not? And in what kind of ways? Uh, Also, to be aware or to investigate, to, to be aware and to investigate, any desire happens in what we could call a context or a field of conditions, inner and outer, that make um, that desire feasible or not. Make certainly um, it's the achievement of that desire um, feasible or not. Um, or even just uh, moving in the direction of, of the desire feasible or not. In other words, I need to be aware if I have this desire and it's actually... Um, for that desire to mate- the goal of that desire to materially manifest um, is impossible with this set of outer conditions or with this set of inner conditions, or I can't even move in that direction with this set of conditions, um, or I'm actually in a field where there is that possibility, or I it may be possible if the conditions change. You know, so in a way, this is just common sense, but. Um, we, this is part of also just kind of bringing a, a, some kind of awareness and, and common sense to, to, to desire. Less perhaps obvious, and though in some ways perhaps even more important, is another um, uh, aspect or set of conditions we need to be aware of that um, <clears throat> often a desire that uh, exists or moves in us or arises in us, it meets an, what we could call an internal pattern of habit with regard to desire. So this, this I think, is very interesting and very important in terms of one's psychological self-awareness. So I might ha- have, for example, a habit of feeling lack. And I've talked about this when we talked about the um, beauty of desire and the opening to the current of desire practice. Um, it may be that my tendency is to is to 
go into feeling the lack and not so much into feeling the desire and the potency of the desire. And I get stuck a little bit in this feeling of lack. Now there may be, uh, we could say, good reasons for that. And, and it may be actually important to feel that. But that may also be a habit, an internal habit. But that's what happens. The desire arises in an internal um, field of, of a certain pattern or patternings. And one of them is this feeling lack. And that does something to the desire. It sends the desire in a certain way, or it dampens it in a certain way, or it blocks it in a certain way, or it convolutes it in a certain way, or something. Or it ricochets off somewhere else. Or it might arise, a desire might arise in an internal habit, uh, internal habit field, um, if you like, or pattern field of expecting disappointment, or expecting the frustration of, 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 of this desire, or any desire. Or it might arise in an internal um, habit field of uh, disallowing or judging desire. Um, uh, Again, for for different reasons, cultural conditioning, education, spiritual education, family education, religious education, etc., etc. Or they're opposites, of course. Um, I expect... I, I never feel a sense of lack. I just go straight into the desire, my kind of gunning, uh, myopically to to get the thing that I want. I never expect to be disappointed or frust or that my desire is frustrated. Um, I never question my desire, um, <clears throat> etc. I never uh, say no. You know, whatever I mean. It's rarely never or always, is it? But um, tendencies, habit pattern, ten- and habit patterns and, and tendencies, uh, patterns of tendency. But these kinds of um, habit patterns, internal conditions around the desire, have a huge effect on what unfolds, and uh, whether the desire is felt or experienced as healing, as clarifying, as freeing, as empowering, as it may be, for instance, in that opening to the current of desire practice that we taught, or as dukkha, in in various ways. So desire can bring dukkha in lots of different ways, lots of different ways, and it depends kind of what it interacts with, uh, especially internally in the... um, in the sankharas, in, in, in the patterns of belief, thinking, assumption, uh, tendency, all of that. And a last, um, or at least for now, or, or, or one other um, element to be aware of um, with one's desire, if one's questioning um, this desire and uh, whether it's worth, uh, is this something to hang on to <coughs> etc to open to um, is whether the desire is authentic or not or not authentic to my soul so often I have the sense that uh, as human beings we can get caught up in desires that actually we don't really care about and somehow we're putting a lot of energy chasing this and that. 
And actually we don't really care about them. And I don't just mean kind of consumerist movements um, uh, of I need this or uh, whatever, but also spiritually. Sometimes, you know, even as person, I really want to realize emptiness. And that may not actually be at this time in one's life, one's one's um, actual, authentic soul's desire. It may be that one's just got one's head full of of this, I need to realize emptiness, I need to realize the unfabricated, or whatever it is, um, because uh, of, of we've just been exposed to certain teachings that emphasize it a lot, and certain people say this is the really important thing, and we're in a crowd that kind of people are really into that, and we, we pick up on that, and we get a little bit um, kind of trammeled by that and pushed into a certain direction. It may not be authentic to our soul at that time. Um, it may be that actually we want to realize this or have a deep insight or have this jhana experience or realize emptiness deeply or whatever it is, that actually what's happening there is the ego is trying to measure up. I've touched on this in the past in talks. And I, I, I feel it's a really important thing to um, to be aware of as a possibility. Is this authentic? In other words, is this desire... Um, coming from my soul, and, and will it be soul-making? Is it what I really authentically want? Authentic has to do with author and, uh, and, and self, auto, yes, to me, to my soul right now. And I remember um, a conversation, an interview with, um, with someone, again, a very, very seasoned practitioner, and... Um, and she said to me, as part of a part, part of a, we were talking about eros and desire and soul and all kinds of stuff. And she said at some point, um, I'm I'm not sure if I'm attracted to if I'm if I'm actually if I actually long for the unfabricated and all that that you talk about, Rob. And um, so when I kind of look inside, I, I, I see that what I long for, I do long for the holy, I do long for a sense of sacredness, but I long for the holy embodied in this or that person and relationship. And then the next thing she said was, should I be more mature? She was asking me, should I be, is this, I find myself not wanting this so much, but wanting that this kind of holiness, not that kind of holiness. Should I be more mature? And and she was asking me, um, as as sort of her teacher, to to uh, not pass judgment, but asking me for my input. And and what I actually felt was important to say in that moment was um, just to point out. Um, <clears throat> That the paradigm that comes to us uh, from the Buddha and from the Pali Canon, from the Theravadan teachings, um, is a, a kind of paradigm and dogma that is patriarchal, full of patriarchal assumptions and patriarchal um, inclinations, or we might say, and put it in quotation marks, typically masculine kind of assumptions, movements, inclinations, priorities. 
styles. Um, it's hard not, I mean, with all the caveats there and, 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 and the care around uh, language and boxes and um, gender stuff and all that, um, it's hard not to read the, the Pali Canon, that whole tradition that comes out of that. It's really a, a kind of um, patriarchal uh, lineage there. Um, both in its power structures, certainly, um, and its regard for uh, women's inferiority and inability and, and that kind of thing with the bhikkhunis that's uh, been been at the forefront of Buddhist Theravada Buddhist consciousness recently. Um, but also in the kind of styles of being and the styles of aim and the styles of moving towards aim and goal, and the kind of, uh, what what is desired. So the rhinoceros sutta, or the rhinoceros horn sutta, um, is really a, a sutta where the Buddha just extols and praises solitude, the solitary wanderers. You know, sangha is great, but solitary wanderer is, is the best thing. Uh, be solitary, be independent. Um, uh, and the model of the Buddha also as a kind of very, um, again, in quotation marks, typically masculine kind of um, uh, archetype, really. Um, and the whole, if you like, transcendent versus imminent thrust and priority, as as this um, person was saying in the interview, the holiness beyond, in the transcendent, unfabricated, and not finding herself actually that's not I'm not sure I'm not actually sure if that really draws me Um, but holiness embodied in this or that person in um, in this or that relationship uh, as a more imminent um, opening thrust movement priority desire Uh, and so with with all of this you know do we have um, the courage uh, and the discernment and the intelligence and the openness to actually question some of the priorities that have come down to us through and from different um, spiritual traditions, teachers, lineages, etc. Uh, and recognizing that there may well be some value in this or that and what's authentic to my soul and what's if you like the the partiality of this or that tradition this or that lineage and for some people this is um this is uh too scary to do or too or it feels arrogant or one thinks how could, how could I possibly do that so again um Perhaps exposing oneself to sangha again. The image of just the bold, solitary questioner is is a certain kind of image. The image of um, in relationship, inquiring together, hearing, listening to each other's heart and soul concerns is a different kind of image, a different kind of style of um, of of questioning. Again, what's kind of in inverted commas typically masculine or typically feminine or whatever. And please, please excuse that language. I hope you can understand what I'm getting at and perhaps there's better ways to say it. So excuse me if I'm <coughs> not saying it quite right. Um, what I'm really talking about is authenticity. 
um, authenticity to my soul, to my soul making right now? Does this thing that I'm setting, uh, that I, I feel I have a desire or I think I have a desire for, and I set my uh, sights on, is it authentic to my soul right now? And does it bring soul making? Or is something else going on there? in this that's worth mentioning is um, when we talk about fire fire is hot and obviously and um, with Eros as well at times and also with the opening to the current desire practice in, in some of what we've been implicitly talking about is the ability to um, tolerate that much eros, tolerate that much desire, um, tolerate that much energy sometimes because of how, it, or learning to tolerate it, to handle it, um, because of how one's skillfully uh, responding to it and, and modulating it, etc., or not so much modulating it, but responding to it, addressing it, being in relationship with it. So this, <coughs> excuse me, um, Tolerating of intensity um, is is a kind of necessity for uh, at times, and more for some people than others, which I'll say more about uh, as we go on. But uh, in this soul in this soul making uh, practice, in the soul making path, um, we need to be able to or to develop. We need to develop the capacity to tolerate the intensity of eros, of libido, of energy um, in general at times. To forge soul uh, requires heat, yes. The ironmonger's forge is a furnace uh, uh, and part of the process is heat. It also involves cooling, doesn't it? You take the the heated uh, metal and then you cool it and then you bend it and you put it back in the fire. So involved, part of the mastering of the fire is the timing of the fire. When when hot, how much heat, what kind of heat, which we'll get into hopefully a little bit, uh, and when to take it out of the heat. But at times, yes, red hot, white hot flame uh, in the forge. And so tolerating uh, the, the capacity, the ability to, to tolerate intensity at times of energy, of eros, of desire, of, of, of libido in general. To forge soul, to create and discover soul and soul making. To forge the sense uh, of self, of other object, world, eros, that goes with soul-making. Um, so again, we've talked about this, I've talked quite a lot about this in different retreats, uh, especially recently, the Eros Unfettered and the Alchemy of Desire retreat, the of Hermits and Lovers, <coughs> um, and the different uh, things that can help in practice there. But it's also worth pointing out, I think, that, um, again, Personality is a significant factor, as is habit, as is cultural conditioning. 
So, um, you know, I've been at parties or whatever, uh, or dinners or, you know, uh, dinner parties or whatever it is, and um, you can see sometimes certain personalities, um, good good friends actually, um, have a different relationship with intensity. Right? Putting on a piece of music at, at a party, and uh, like actually some John Coltrane who I mentioned the other day, and um, and, a, and a good friend of mine, this is years ago, and a good friend of mine saying, you know, after a little while, I think, well, can you put something else on? It's a bit intense. Um, uh, or or when a conversation gets kind of um, heated, uh, not necessarily arguing, but just kind of full of kind of intellectual passion or brilliance, and some people it's just it's just a bit intense, and I'd rather not I'd rather not um, I'd rather not. It's just not the habit, or it's not okay in a certain situation or whatever. Uh, and sometimes that's personality, and sometimes it's habit, and sometimes it's cultural conditioning, as I said. And sometimes we create a habit, um, or we create, again, conditions that have an effect on the fire. So I mentioned many, uh, I can't remember when it was, but years ago, you know, there's just a, a little bit of alcohol. Drink, drink a bit of beer or a bit of wine every day. What happens to my fire, my fires? Uh, it um, dulls and dims my fire, it dulls my intensity, dampens uh, all that, uh, it makes soggy that alcohol, that, uh, that liquid uh, makes, it dampens, it makes soggy um, my fire. And uh, one, one can see that in others. You see... The, the fire, their intensity, and over time you see that go out of their life. Do they actually become kind of um, lacking fire? Because because of the sort of daily or regular habit of drinking even just a little bit of alcohol. Uh, and then there's cultural conditioning uh, and cultural kind of inhibitions depending on situation or upbringing and all that that, that affects how we um, relate or whether we can tolerate intensity because intensity is just something to tolerate so to speak if there even is such a thing as in itself but if I then have a cultural uh, a voice of cultural conditioning saying this isn't okay or it's not good to, to be intense or it's not good to be intense in a social situation or not good to be intense when you're um, whatever it is um, or well, this kind of ten intensity is okay, that kind of intensity isn't. That's going to put uh, another kind of pressure on the fire that makes it also hard to tolerate. Either we just smother the fire or it gets smothered, or we actually feel a kind of intolerable pressure and we can't tolerate the intensity. And kind of implicit in all that, what I've just said is... Um, our, our capacity and uh, ability to tolerate um, intensity, heat, fire, is also dependent, um, of course, on the, the logos that's going on at the moment. Um, so, for example, if it's with an imaginal figure and there's um, the fire of Eros there, um, then the, the logos that we have of regarding imagination, regarding soul-making, regarding 
the kind of perceptions that we're calling sensing with soul, uh, the logos we have regarding fire, eros, desire, etc., all that um, helps or hinders uh, my capacity in the moment to tolerate this intensity. In other words, as I said um, <coughs> before, and I think in that talk, Logos in the Garden of Souls, uh, on the Eros Unfettered Retreat and other places, um, the Logos, if, it, if it's the right Logos, it really helps give stability and capacity, and it, it helps the soul-making. A logos that doesn't, you know, that is suspicious of imagination or suspicious of eros, or, or, um, a logos that kind of makes the fire burn, builds a structure of wood, if you like, if we if we extend the metaphor, builds a structure of wood where it all just burns too quickly. Um, it, not that helpful for tolerating. Um, so tolerating depends on logos. My capacity to tolerate intensity depends on the logoi operating, um, and also, of course, uh, on the images operating, the fantasies operating uh, that are in play. So, for example, the self images operating. Um, the images go back to that party of Coltrane and that, uh, of that kind of music, and the images also of intensity. The images, um, if we're talking on a down path of, of again of oneself, of of what a seeker is and feels like, what it what it means to be a seeker is is a seeker someone with fire, what kind of fire? What's the image? What's the fantasy of that? Again, the fantasy of the self on the path. What's the fantasy of the path? What's the fantasy of the Dharma? Um, the fantasy of the tradition and other seekers that we might know, and the fantasy of uh, that lineage and their relationship uh, to all this. Or the fantasy, um, the image of uh, intensity with respect to talking about ideas, like that that's not okay to have that kind of intensity. For what, for what reasons, you know? All, all this will affect our uh, capacity to kind of tolerate intensity, tolerate heat. So the logos and the image of all the fire and, and all of that, uh, what we've <coughs> said as possibilities there, outlined as possibilities. Now I should say, with all this, we're talking about fire, but um, and it may well have occurred to you um, already that fire is an image. Uh, it's a, we're using it as a metaphor or an image, and not as a clear concept. It's not a clear concept if I say, uh, what is fire? Um, I'm not exactly just translating it as desire. Um, but that's okay. Uh, it's not a problem. But we could go into it as a concept and kind of have a look at what um, what's involved in fire. What what does fire include? So we've we've said and we've we've uh, kind of dwelt a little bit on eros, craving, desire, and and differentiating between them. But fire includes that passion, commitment, energetic arousal, intensity of focus, mental arousal, alertness, 
sensitivity, receptivity, penetratingness. All these, we could say, are, are um, included in what fire can mean. Yeah? When we talk about someone's fire, or my fire, your fire, on the path, or in relation to something, we, we, we really mean all this. Eros, craving, desire, the play of all this. Passion, commitment, <coughs> energetic arousal, intensity of focus, um, as I said, mental aspects like alertness, sensitivity, receptivity, penetratingness, all that. Um, we can also say, in, in terms of what, what, what's involved in fire, what are the aspects of fire that we might need to be aware of in mastering the fire? Uh, I actually don't want to go into this too much, so I just want to throw um, some things out, kind of relatively briefly, for you to reflect on, for you to consider in your um, awarenesses, in your um, investigations, experiments, explorations, conversations. Um, talk about mastering the fire, and we use that as a loose, a loose metaphor, a loose image. What might be involved? for me right now? What can I notice? What can I take care of? What can I perhaps modulate and respond to there? What are the elements involved? So again, I'm not intending to be um, really rigorous or complete or systematic here, but just to kind of sprinkle some seeds for your process, for your creativity, for your discovery. Um, I'm actually quite reluctant to be systematic here. Again, uh, that reluctance uh, probably my personality style. Um, partly because, um, you know, there are, as I've said before, there are different soul styles. Different souls or different souls even at different stages in their life. The fire burns differently. It's a different kind of fire burning in that person and that person. You can't really say it's more or less. It's just a different style of burning. This one rages and it's that color, and that one's um, uh, quieter, but much more steady, has less wind in it, whatever. Uh, um, so there's different soul styles, and soul styles need respecting. It's not for me, not for anyone, to say, all fires should look like this. Your fire should look like this. Uh, so as a teacher, you know, what's my responsibility um, to a student um, in regards to their fire? And what's your responsibility um, as a practitioner in regards to your own fire? What is my soul style? What is your soul style, your fire style? Or your fire style in relation to this or that aspect? And what actually needs some attention, needs some care, needs some mastery, some active responsiveness, some taking care, some change, some adaptation, some steering. So again, there's this kind of um, dialectic, this uh, you know, tightrope is too dramatic an analogy, but uh, with all this. So for example, emotionality is, uh, we could say, an element or a character, uh, a characteristic of fire. So sometimes um, it's characteristic of certain people's fire. It's like their style, um, their fire style, their soul style um, is very emotional and less so with other people's fire. 
Yes, and again, it doesn't mean there's less fire, or uh, it's a it's a, a a fire of less quality. It's a fire of different quality. Um, so the question is, for example, how here is the passion, and how much emotion is there in that passion? So passion can be very um, steady, very unremarkable, and kind of undramatic uh, looking to the outside eye, and also to the inner sense of it. Uh, it hasn't got a lot of emotionality in it. And other um, people, or other styles, or uh, other same person at a different time, the passion has a lot of emotion in it. But if there's emotionality in in the fire, uh, as a characteristic of fire, whatever emotionality is in the fire, it needs to be relatively fluid. That means not too rigid or frozen, either in fixed repetitive patterns. I always get really upset about this, and it gets locked into something in a way that's actually just frozen, just rigid, just repetitive. This is just samsara, this is just this dukkha cycling around again. It's got a lot of emotion, it's got a lot of fire, but it's just uh, a a kind of um, samsaric prison. Only certain emotions around certain things, and I just am locked into that. Too much, too constrained, too small, too repetitive, too, too. The fire is frozen in a way. You get this. And this is just a side point. You get this also with uh, the range of a person's empathic warmth as well. If we talk about heat and fire, sometimes. Um, a person can be very empathic with something where they kind of um, uh, assent, uh, agree with uh, or understand or are familiar with a certain logos and why they, they, they kind of have a certain view of why that person is suffering and that kind of suffering is justified according to a certain logos and the compassion flows, the fire flows, the warmth there, the compassion, the empathy flows very freely. And when a person is describing a kind of suffering that fits, uh, that doesn't quite fit into the into the remit, into the extent, the circle of the logos that that, that person has, then there can be this person is suffering maybe just as much as the first person, but the listener has no empathy there because the logos, as I said, logos functions as a as a as a face, as a connecting point, a connecting strand of intimacy between people. And because the suffering that you're talking about, I just can't really understand it. Or I can't, I can't, in, in my world, my worldview, my logos, my dharma view, whatever, it just doesn't make sense. And I, I can't therefore really empathize much. I can't really extend the, the warmth of the empathy and, and the compassion, that kind of tender fire there. So this needs to be a certain, if you like, fluidity um, to the emotionality, uh, to the fire perhaps, uh, to the way it burns. But not too much fluidity, um, so that one is kind of emotionally disturbed and agitated about everything. Everything sets off my fire. I'm just, I'm just like on, on a hair edge... Uh, on on a hair trigger or whatever the phrase is everything disturbs me everything agitates me I get uh, the fire is not uh, it's too kind of undisciplined in a way 
uh, too fluid. I'm uh, uh, little. Uh, this little thing I get upset about, or, or uh, you know, on fire about, and that little thing, and then this little thing is just flitting. The fire is flitting all over the place um, in a way that's not really harmonized, not really building anything, not really opening anything at all. Just, just one agitation after, after the, after another. So these kind of elements, you can see again how they're related, how they open, overlap. Passion needs commitment, and commitment needs passion. We talk about a fire that's steady um, is, is the commitment, um, and and passion. I can't be. I feel really passionate about this, and. Uh, look at my behavior and it just doesn't play out in any kind of consistent dedication or devotion or commitment. But a commitment needs some kind of passion, needs some kind of uh, um, uh, warmth and fire and ignition, sparkle. Um, and part of that is, 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 is the fluidity, if you like, of the fire being neither too great nor too limited. And again, that has to do, uh, fluidity also has to do with attention. You know, attention flitting from this thing and that thing. Oh, that's got my fire, now that's got my fire. It's like there's a certain amount of um, harnessing that needs to happen for the fire to really be soul-making, but not too much, too tight, too small. And also of the emotionality. So, we could say the fire, um, it needs to sustain, it needs to not burn out or exhaust its fuel. Yes, what does this mean as far as soul making is concerned? As far as Eros is concerned, the fire must sustain, not burn out and not exhaust its fuel. What does it mean for our path, our paths? Um, it must burn, fire must burn, our fires must burn in ways that support um, the sustaining of something else. That is the path, our commitment, the necessary practices, um, study, preparation, questioning, struggle, hassle, purification, all that. The fire is in the service of sustaining something else. Fire must sustain, in our case, soul-making, everything that's involved in that. Fire itself is not soul-making, just as fire itself is neither helpful nor unhelpful. Um, uh, as I said, it can be dangerous, can be extremely um, uh, beneficial. Fire in itself is kind of neither this nor that. So fire is in the service of something. We want it to burn in a way that it can actually support and serve, sustaining other aspects. Because you get, you know, quick burning fires. Or there's wood, there's kinds of wood that burn very quickly. And there's kinds of wood, uh, and I think hardwoods, you know, they burn much slower. Uh, or, or the flame is more steady. What does that have to do with patience, longing, devotion, yearning, eros, and patience? One of the paramis the Buddha talked about. Uh, there are fires.
whereas there are woods or conditions of wood where the fire causes a lot of smoke, <laughs> more smoke than fire, or conditions of fuel where there's um, very, very little smoke. It's all fire. What might this mean? What might this mean when it comes to our fire? and the possibilities of mastering the fire, or just discerning, discernment with regard to the fire, awareness, responsiveness, possible responsiveness. So, we could say, related to a lot of what we just said, discipline is necessary for a holy fire. Discipline is an interesting word, so I, I mean it in both senses of the word. So we've got this retreat coming up in a couple of months, tending the holy fire. And uh, what do we need for a holy fire? For that metaphor, that image. Discipline is, is, is actually uh, an ingredient. As well, perhaps, uh, or some discipline, let's say. Because a lot of these things, there's kind of opposites, complements, paradoxes. So discipline, I mean it in two senses uh, of the word. The actual word um, has has this, um, the uh, d- discipline is a, is a teaching. A disciple is someone, is a, is a pupil, is someone uh, who studies. Um, so discipline in a holy fire requires learning. I have to um, study in, in the broader sense of what, what that means. I have to develop um, and implicit in that is, is a stance, a poise, an attitude of humility. And that's necessary for a holy fire to burn within me, within my life, within my path, on my path. And uh, the um, second kind of meaning of, of discipline, some kind of um, steadiness or rigor, um, or actually containment. Um, so it's interesting, <coughs> um, <coughs> if you think about those uh, religions or places or traditions that burn and a kind of uh, eternal holy fire, so there's that in synagogues in Judaism, there's that in the Parsi religion, I'll come back to the Parsi uh, attitude to fire, or the Parsi teaching, Parsi teaching and ritual around fire in, in, in a little bit, um, also uh, other places, um, the Olympic torch, you know, uh, I think under the Arc de Triomphe or in, in Paris as well. Um, where there's uh, eternal fire, that eternal fire is contained. So in other words, the fuel is brought to the fire in order that it keep going. And it's contained in a small space. And then compare that with a wildfire where the fire finds the fuel. It spreads to find the fuel. Maybe the soul needs both. The soul needs us, needs a, a fire that's contained, and it also needs um, to spread. Uh, in the, the soul-making dynamic, as I said, spreads the vortex of eros psyche logos spreads in different ways into different domains. It's the breaking of the vessels. There's a wildfire. So some discipline and some whatever the opposite of discipline is, some wildness, I'll come back to that too. Perhaps the soul needs both, but discipline for now, uh, let's, let's dwell on that one, in both senses of, 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 of uh, 
uh, a willingness to learn, an attitude, a poise, a relationship of learning, studying, developing, humility, and of, let's say, um, uh, the, the rigor of uh, containment that allows steadiness. Um, our word, uh, so talking about containment now, our, our word um, focus actually comes from a Latin word which means hearth or fireplace. Um, and so, you know, in this word, uh, focus, uh, as, as in a hearth or a fireplace, it was where people gathered before there was electricity and before there was central heating and, and all that. Um, the family, the, the village or whatever, would gather around the, the hearth, the fireplace. Uh, and that would be the focus. They, they would, that would be the focus of the social life, the focus of um, also the spiritual life sometimes. And so that word focus has a lot to do with um, with f- fires burning, with mastery of fire. has something to do with mastery of fire. Uh, a gathering of energies. So like a magnifying glass actually focuses the rays of light and the energy in the ray of light enough that actually something can ignite. So listen, listen to this with your soul. Um, all of this is what we might call poet, poetic metaphor. How will it translate? How might it translate? What might it mean for you? What might it give you to consider? But there's something that needs, a, or that involves a kind of gathering of energies, a kind of focusing uh, in in uh, the the way fire sometimes need to burn. And there's also. Um, back to this word focus and its meaning uh, in Latin of, of hearth or fireplace, there's the, um, the fact that when a fire is burning in our soul, it brings to it, it gathers to it uh, other qualities, other beings gather, beings gather around fire, the focus, the hearth, the fireplace. And soul, part of the alchemy of the fire in the soul is that it draws to it, we could say, other aspects of soul, images, uh, imaginal figures are drawn to that fire. The divine is drawn to the soul's fire. Actually, in the, staying with this just for a little bit longer, this, this business about focus and gathering energies and um, in the Satipatthana Sutta, many of you will know, in the uh, English translations, of, often translated, for example, uh, a monk, a meditator, um, dwells or abides, um, looking at pasi pasi, um, the uh, or regarding or contemplating um, the body and the body, the feelings and the feelings, etc. Um, ardent, uh, alert, and careful. Um, and ardent is a very common translation. It directly um, translates the Pali word atapi, um, which itself translates as uh, as heat, as the heat from the sun. Atapi. Uh, or or, uh, or the, the fire or burning of zeal. So again, you, you have a uh, Actually, also in Latin, ardere is to burn. So there's something about the Buddha's, we're talking about gathering the energies in a certain way, gathering the focus, mindful, sampajana, fully alert, 
knowing what's happening, uh, and satima, careful, with mindful care, and ardent, with with the fire gathered, focused, or um, with with one's fire burning in relation to this, with with zeal. Uh, of course, in in that um, more Theravadan style uh, of the Pali Canon, um, the combination of that description of of um, mindful focus, ardent, alert. Um, careful uh, sort of repeats in the refrain if I remember in the Satipatthana Sutta um, that combination Im- implicit in that combination is in the Sampajana in the clearly comprehending what's happening right now and carefulness uh, with the ardency, with the burning uh, zeal, the fire um, uh, implicit in that combination is a style of burning that is very focused, um, contained, we might even say restrained. The fire is restrained. This is not uh, uh, wild and ecstatic um, uh, fire burning, as it might be in a sort of uh, other traditions, um, say tantric traditions, or some tantric uh, traditions, or kind of Dionysian kind of things, or whatever. Um, so the, the, there's fire there. It's a certain, if you like, image of uh, the way a fire burns. It's much more contained, much more steady. But there's fire. We um, can also point out that fire needs, I don't know what to call it, intelligence, perhaps. Um, so sometimes what happens is we get in, as, as human beings, we get into kind of a black and white thinking um, with regard to something. And, and that black and white thinking is coupled um, coupled with and fueled by a certain reification and a certain clinging to some self-view. Um, so that um, something that sounds perhaps really good is actually being fed by a kind of thinking that's... Um, not so fully explored or or perhaps lacking a kind of a certain kind of intelligence so even like i must do a year retreat so that i can realize emptiness and and then you know implicitly why because then my problems will go away and and maybe even underneath that if you ask why um there's a thing well maybe i'll, I'll be a better person then or or again i've proved my self-worth measurement etc again we have this is it authentic is it authentic is it soul making but also what's you know what's um constructing a kind of black and white thinking and a kind of um, wrapping in, involving, pulling in a kind of reification and a self-view there, perhaps in a way that the, the fuel for that fire is going to make that fire burn, um, not in a, in a way that's really helpful. Um, <clears throat> So, actually, if we stay again with this, go back to this containment thing uh, analogy, then um, sometimes um, a person is kind of 
enamored with fieriness, or there's a kind of, if you like, uh, to, to use words we used on a previous retreat, immature enchantment with fire or with passion. And so um, the fire tends to get always um, itself reified. We're talking about fire now, it's an image, and the relation with that image, when it's imaginal, can be loose and responsive and um, poetic, etc., um, and not so clung to in, in a way that's unhelpful, not so uh, uh, with the tightness of craving and grasping. But sometimes you see in, in a person's style, there's some kind of um, tendency to almost always kind of reify and concretize, um, to be enamored of passion and then to reify and concretize what fire is going to look like. And to make it visible, it always needs to um, manifest, and perhaps again in a very sort of um, through a very sort of black and white thinking, my passion for this, my fire with regard to this, manifests in this kind of total sort of action, a very extreme kind of um, implementation or um, playing out or uh, expression of something or choice. I drop everything and I do that. And of course sometimes that's part of a freedom and it's exactly the right thing to do and there's some beauty in that and there's some radicality in that in the best sense and partly it's it's more that there's this as i said immature enchantment with fire and 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 a kind of with that a rigid um belief in what it looks like and a and a too tight tendency uh an impulse to concretize always wrapped up with this black and white thinking if there's fire fire is good and and passion is good, and, and if there isn't, I do this, and it's very kind of radical and, and black and white. And is it really necessary that there's that kind of um, black and white thinking or, or concretization, um, a total sort of um, concretization of something? Is the image we have of fire and passion being reified and being clung to in ways that are perhaps not that helpful and not necessarily that soul-making, or they they end up yielding uh, interactions in the world or situations that, that are not soul-making, because they're built, again, on some kind of reification, some kind of um, yeah, black-and-white thinking, an attachment to self-view, an attachment to a certain idea of fire and passion. What would happen instead if if the fire and the passion itself were allowed to become imaginal um, uh, in in the sense of properly imaginal, authentically imaginal, genuinely imaginal? Which means lingering with the very sense of fire and the perception and the ideation of fire and passion, sensing its beauty, sensing its unfathomability, its dimensionality, its beyondnesses, its divinity. And in that discerning this, what is the actual duty that's wrapped up in the beauty of this fire for me, of this sense of this passion for me. And not just plugging in an automatic, immature enchantment, black and white thinking, uh, reification, uh, solid self-view, etc. Then, uh, if, if we can approach it more imaginally, more maturely, 
uh, our enchantment becomes mature enchantment and we can have the beauty and the dimensionality of that imaginal fire and we can have the action that is not burdened or uh, kind of injected with uh, reification and identification in ways that uh, make it more um, make it problematic issue in something problematic or meet something problematic later on in the world um, so in a way we could say that's also a kind of containment not just jumping in to to this kind of immediate uh, translation into immediate sort of uh, black and white interpretation, concretization of duty. The fire needs a little containment. Let's stare into that fire a little bit. Let's let's feel that fire. Let's meditate on that fire. Let it become imaginal and see what comes from that. So sometimes we could say, yeah, fire needs. Um, needs a bit more containment or containment of a different kind and sometimes it needs um, less containment and then to you know again just seeds for you to um, reflect on for you to consider talk with each other about uh, inquiring to experiment with become aware of in practice because we can talk about fire in different, or what should we say, dimensions of our being. So is it to feel fire and to allow the fire and to respond to the fire um, in or of the mind, the fire of attention, the fire of um, the intellect and the brilliancy of that, the fire of, of in, in thought and in conception, uh, or the fire of the heart. And does it need to be? either in the mind or the heart, or can we have both together? Why not? The fire, as we said, including empathy as a kind of fire, a kind of warmth. Um, the fire of the, the heart's passion, the heart's being moved, the heart's longing. And fire in the body, so to speak. And then even then, in different, uh, if, if you like, uh, parts or dimensions of the body, what does it mean, fire in the whole body? What's fire in the belly? What's fire in the loins? So these are all, if you like, um, directions or kinds of fire or uh, elements of fire that we can explore. Um, I mentioned the um, Parsi religion of uh, ancient Persia. Uh, it actually came out of the um, uh, Zoroastrian religion, or it is the continuation of Zoroastrian religion, um, uh, it was based in Persia uh, many centuries ago. And in that uh, religion, Catherine told me about this, and I did a little bit of research on it. Um, and uh, they burn, uh, they keep burning a holy fire, an eternal fire, as part of their ritual. But to make these, uh, to make a new fire, um, and to consecrate a new fire uh, and a new fire temple, 
um, it takes more than two and a half years. Okay, so it's not just you just light a fire and then you just decide that it's holy. Again, listen with your soul. Listen what it means for you and for us with regard to soul-making, with regard to passion, with regard to eros, with regard to path, with regard to, yeah, possibly ritual, all of that. But also it, both, both uh, outer and inner. Uh, so it takes, you know, it's a big deal to consecrate a new fire, to consecrate a new fire temple. And there are 16 different kinds of fire that need to be um, brought uh, and gathered together to make, uh, to consecrate a new fire. And each of those individual fires needs to be individually consecrated. And so this, this newly consecrated holy fire in the new temple needs to um, be ignited from 16 different kinds of fire, each um, individually cons- consecrated. Together, uh, one by one, they um, contribute to this new con- newly consecrated fire. And and those 16, I'll, I'll read them to you if I can find them. Um, where is it? Um, so, they are um, the fire used by a dyer, meaning someone who dyes wool or cloth or garments or uh, material in a, in a pot, in a cauldron. Um, the fire from a dyer, uh, the fire from the house of a king or a ruler. Uh, there's a two. This is not in any particular order, by the way. The fire from a potter, someone who uh, uh, makes pottery with clay. The fire from a brick maker. What does all this? How might all these, these, each of these kinds of fires function as little? Uh, images or imaginal seeds that might get translated uh, and and planted in the soul. This kind of fire, that kind of fire in the soul. I'll I'll leave you if if that is interesting to you or or you're attracted to that. The fire from a potter, the fire from a brick maker. They do different things in the culture, don't they? Someone who dyes cloth or wool or whatever, someone who rules, someone who makes um, uh, pots and dishes and jugs, someone who, uh, the fire from a brick maker, someone who, the bricks that make houses and buildings and temples, the fire from an ascetic, the fire from a goldsmith, you know, is the fire that burns uh, what is precious and makes uh, makes of it beautiful ornaments and beautiful decorations and beautiful things of great value. The fire from a mint, the fire that burns uh, metal to make coins. The fire from an ironsmith, uh, the, the fire that burns uh, iron, heats iron the same for to make different tools, different implements. The fire from an armourer is a very particular kind of um, implements, shields and swords and armour. The fire from a baker, from the baker's oven. The fire that makes uh, the, the, the goodness of bread, the nourishment that comes from the, turning the, 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 the earth and the wheat and the rye or spelt or whatever it is 
the grains from the earth, uh, turning that, helping that to become nourishment for us, the wholesome nourishment, the fire from a brewer. <laughs> Somebody brews alcohol. That's interesting too, isn't it? If we connect that with Dionysius. The fire from a soldier. Again, I talked about the nobility and the duty of, of the, the warrior image, the soldier. The uh, Everything that goes into being a soldier in the, in the best sense of the word, or that, that at least the imaginal soldier. The fire from any house in the community. So just the kind of ordinary hearth. And then uh, two... Those are 14 so far. And then two fires that come um, not from uh, humans. The fire, not from live humans at least. One is fire from uh, the burning of a corpse. Fire from the cremation pyre. <clears throat> and lastly, um, fire from lightning. From lightning from, from clouds. So the first 14 are all fires from different kinds of human and social um, interactions. And this is one of the ways that, um, uh, socially at least, we can, we can say that the Zoroastrian com community, um, in their sacredness, gathered together, um, pooled together uh, the social cohesion, involved everyone. Um, but to me, it's, it's more than that. Um, in, Again, translating for us, it's also it's not just me and my fire, but we, uh, our eros, our fire, our soul making ignites um, from others, um, uh, with others, from the sangha, in the sangha, as we've pointed out. But then these last two fires, um, the cremation fire is the fire from the dead. So there's a connection with the ancestors, fire from the, the beyond of this of this world, the beyond of human beings, fire from the dead, the connection with death, and soul has a connection with death. And then the fire from lightning, meaning the fire from the heavens from the sky, from the, really from the heavens. Again, another, uh, you could say, natural or, or uh, non-human dimension. Uh, so, um, I just offer that as, <coughs> again, something that perhaps for some of you will stimulate a kind of further reflection, thinking, poetic imagining into um, fire and kinds of fire and what might be involved and what might be necessary and what makes uh, what makes a fire soul making what allows and supports a fire to be soul making <clears throat> um, so a couple of things just to end having said all this uh, and, and kind of just playing a little bit and, and kind of considering a little bit this uh, metaphor of mastering the fire in the context of um, really saying, you know, if, if our fire is not mastered, if it either just goes out or if it 
burns in uh, a kind of totally uncontrolled uh, way, then there is dukkha. Or rather there's different ways that fire can create dukkha in the soul-making process, in the erotic imaginal process, um, if we're not careful with it, if we're not attending to it, if there isn't enough mastery of the fire. But in a way, I can't help but um, want to qualify all that and contextualize it <coughs> by saying a couple more things. Um, one is that um, there has to be, at least in the way that I would conceive of the whole soul-making process and soul-making dynamic, <coughs> there has to be a realization that we will never completely master soul's fire or fires. So it's it's a good metaphor. It's a it's a lovely image, and it, uh, you know an alchemical image, and it's really important in this consideration of how how do we actually uh, you know um, have this as I said this vehicle of soul making be work well for us, deliver what it can, deliver open um, what it can open, and issue uh, where it can issue. <coughs> Well, mastering the fire is part of that. But I have to say, um, again, complementing or uh, in dialectical tension with what I've said, I don't think we will ever completely master soul's fires. And, I'd say, we wouldn't want to. The soul, uh, we, w- we wouldn't want to. The soul wouldn't want to master its own fires, if you like. The soul will always, as I've said, be... Be and have more than me somehow than than my sense of ego. So <clears throat> again, to borrow that phrase from Jesus, it's something like, and I'm sorry if I'm misquoting it. No one knows where the Holy Spirit bloweth, and he's making an analogy with, you know, the 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 wind of uh, the atmospheric wind of of the earth. No one knows where that bloweth. It comes, it goes, it changes directions. We can't predict it where, uh, if you like, (coughs) um, we receive it. We're pushed and pulled by it. We can do something with that push and pull, as sailors do, but no one really knows, and you can't predict where it bloweth, where the Spirit bloweth, where the Holy Spirit bloweth. And... Uh, the soul's fire, like the Holy Spirit, and fire is also an image for Holy Spirit <coughs> in many traditions, um, it's not going to be A, completely predictable, or completely controllable. I cannot ever completely arrive at final mastery of my soul's fire and of the soul's fire, and nor would I actually ever want to. There's the beauty of that beyondness, of something bigger than me, of also the unpredictability of it. <clears throat> so yes, at times it blows out of my control, or I don't quite know where it's blowing or why. At times it seems to blow out, and then at times it comes back. It re- re-emerges from the embers, from the, what seem like the ashes. <clears throat> it doesn't seem to be always directed by me. And, and from some perspective, it seems never to be directed by me, given to me by soul, as I said, and it's my job to harness it, to 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 respond to it, to uh, have some mastery in relationship to it. 
we talked about on previous retreats, you know, the potential uh, realization in in somewhere on the trajectory of soul making that my um, my desire, my eros, my will, even is actually <coughs> rooted in or emanating um, from the divine eros, the divine desire, the divine will. This fire is not even my fire. Now that's a, uh, again, as a genuine, and I'd also say inevitable, uh, soul-making perception that arises um, inevitably at certain, with a certain maturing of the whole soul-making movement. Uh, arises at times, in and out, and, and then it's something that with practice we can deliberately sort of tap into that perspective. <clears throat> and you know, I'm talking here about it needs to be an embodied, sensitive way of looking at perspective. It's not just a kind of um, attractive idea and actually a, and, and, a, and a kind of convenient one because then it's like, oh, any desire I have is good because it's God's desire, it's divine, uh, that kind of, again, very immature, uh, ego-serving kind of uh, appropriation of a perspective. But there's this, again, humility, and I would say beauty, mystery, and magnificence in realizing that, yes, I can uh, reflect on and practice and attend to uh, mastering the fire and my capacity and my ability with that and tolerating and everything we've talked about and more, (coughs) but I will never completely master the fire. There's always something... Uh, soul will always be bigger. Soul will always be greater. Soul will always be more powerful. Uh, in my book. And on that note, related to that, I uh, in, again in the context we we've, context we've talked about <coughs> how we can take care and attend and respond in imaginal practice, in sensing the soul, in the whole soul-making path, so that it doesn't create uh, more dukkha or lock dukkha into place or exacerbate it. Uh, and so this is really important, this this business about fire and kind of exploring that metaphor and seeing what it means in my life, in, on my path, in my practices. Um, but there's there's a sense where it's not, it's not never going to be under my thumb completely. And uh, thank God for that. Um, Donald Winnicott, the psychiatrist, uh, D.W. Winnicott, uh, wrote somewhere or other, um, we are poor indeed if we are only sane. We are poor indeed if we are only sane. So here's uh, a man who devoted his life to... uh, psychiatry to, if, if you could say, the support of sanity. And he wrote, we are poor indeed if we are only sane. There. There's always going to be some part where the fire rages out of control, some thread, some times. There's always going to be something Dionysian, some craziness, some insanity, some holy madness. I hope it's holy. We are poor indeed if we are only sane. We could also say we are poor indeed if we are only safe. Uh, 
just to play a little bit with what he said. We are poor indeed if we are only safe too. So if, I'm, if the fire is always under my thumb, I've always mastered it, it's always under my control, it is always just contained just so, then I'm, I'm always sane, I'm always safe, I have a feeling of always being safe, but maybe I'm not then uh, receiving the full grace and gift and impetus and kind of direction of... Uh, soul and soul's desires, designs, intentions for me. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.